third annual Apopka International Jazz Fest, starring Pebo Bryson with host Kim Waters, along with Kayla Waters and Ken Ford, Saturday, March 25th at the Apopka Amphitheater. For complete details and tickets, log on to ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And we welcome you to another episode of the program coming up. Our guest this week will be Peter King of CBS News Radio, former colleague of mine back in my radio days. Peter's going to talk some baseball with us, and we will talk about uh, the space program and all things aerospace as uh, he covers uh, the uh, the Space Coast with keen interest as well as, as an anchor for CBS News. Peter is standing by in the virtual green room and will join us in just a moment. So let's uh, tag down a couple of items in the world of sports. So, did you enjoy the Pro Bowl games? I will admit I did not watch. Now, the game itself was replaced with a series of events, uh, skills challenge, and like they play dodgeball, and then they culminate it with a flag football game. The, the one glowing thing I can say about this, at least they're no longer pretending to play flag or touch football in the Pro Bowl. It's a tough uh, conundrum. Uh, obviously, guys do not want to get hurt playing in this game and jeopardize the big money that awaits them. But you know, you do want to recognize the greats of the, of the season, the best players of the season, and, uh, you know, it's just a watered-down form, and I think we just have to accept that now. That's just the way it is. You know, there will not be tackling in the Pro Bowl, and that is it. (laughs) So there you go. Rest in peace (laughs) to the Pro Bowl game. And, of course, Super Bowl Sunday fast approaching, and I have not done a lot of coverage on that this week. I figure you're getting plenty of that elsewhere. Uh, But I'm sure you're just dying to know who my pick is so that you can fade it and actually win your bet. Um, Of course, I'm going to bet if I had money with my heart because, you know, as an NFC East team and the Dallas Cowboys being my team, I just cannot root for the Eagles. Nope, can't do it. Not at a no siree. So I will pick the Kansas City Chiefs. So I'm going with my rooting interest in this contest. But I think it will be a pretty exciting game uh, between the uh, these two teams. The Eagles have been the best team in the NFC all year. Uh, you could argue Kansas City is one of the three best teams in the AFC. There's much more competition there. But uh, we'll see if Patrick Mahomes can secure another ring. And, of course, the reason I said you're probably tired of Super Bowl coverage is, and I do this every year, so allow me my moment to talk about the terribleness, terribleness, as Charles Barkley would say, of Radio Row, the worst week in sports and podcasting. Uh, Goodness gracious. Uh, Guy, you know, it's all about the image Hey, our radio station was at the Super Bowl. And, okay, great. You know, they get to interview a lot of celebrities and star athletes as, of course, they are hawking 
the things that they endorse because they get a little scratch for that. And some of those interviews are compelling. Some of them are not. So anyway, it's, but it's just the same old, same old where, you know, you could go up and down your radio dial, whether it be terrestrial radio, satellite radio, and you can hear one guy from go from one show to the next show. You could hear the same guy all day long if you really wanted to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Terrible. Terrible week in broadcasting. And finally, um, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden, a guy I don't like to talk about, Drama King James, I've been talking about. So just a week or so removed from his five-year-old temper tantrum, after getting fouled at the end of the Celtics game, he has now passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA's leading scorer. And again, I take no issue with the greatness of LeBron as a player. He's 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 tremendous. It's you know anybody who denies that is an idiot. But he wears us out with his exhausting drama year after year after year, which is why he's not beloved like MJ, or the man he passed, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And the interesting, intriguing part about LeBron passing it by, LeBron had benefit of the three-point line. Kareem made one three-pointer in his NBA career. (laughs) All his points were down low. So you look at that aspect of LeBron's game, giving him that advantage to to uh, pile up points at a faster rate. And, you know, it, it's, it just amazes me now how <laughs> every year, we always say this isn't going to happen to us, but we say, oh, my gosh, I'm becoming my dad. Because <laughs> I remember as a kid, you know, we have our 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 sports heroes, and our fathers would say, oh, those guys, they couldn't handle the, the heroes of my day. They would crush them into the ground. <laughs> and I hate to kind of go that route with this Kareem LeBron thing, but, you know, it, the each passing day, the heroes of my sports youth are... Ten times greater than the sports heroes of today. And it's almost like there's nothing you can do about it. We're back with Peter King from CBS News Radio right after this. Central Florida, it's Pete Bryson. Baby, can you stop the Oscar Award winner, Pebo Bryson, performing live at the third annual Apopka International Jazz Festival, Saturday, March 25th, at the beautiful Apopka Amphitheater, hosted by world-renowned saxophonist Kim Water, along with urban keyboardist Kayla Water and jazz violinist King of String, Ken Ford. Pebo Bryson, live. For complete details, log on to ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome my former colleague back from my Paxson Radio days. And, of course, he is a longtime reporter and anchor for CBS News Radio. Peter King is here with us. Peter, it's great to have you back on the show. 
Well, nice to be back, and and nice to hear the sounder. I almost started to uh, start a newscast right there. <laughs> yeah, I thought that would surprise you a little bit. And boy, you were you you, you, you were you were launched. You were ready to go. I could tell. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm sitting in the big chair where I do the work. That's outstanding as always, and uh, we will talk a little bit about you, your your exploits at CVS News as well as uh, your coverage of the space program. But we're going to talk a little sports first, and. Uh, and, of course, you're one of the big baseball fans that I know of. And, of course, uh, 2023 going to be a bit different this year with some rules changes coming into play, amongst others, the banning of the shift, the pitch timer, and bigger bases. So uh, what are your takes on uh, these changes for the upcoming season? Let me let me tell you a shift story, and this goes back a few years. John Carlos Stanton was in one of his first years with the Yankees. Uh, we went over to see him play the uh, Rays, and the Rays, of course, shifted on him every time. Now, number one, I'm not a Yankee fan, never have been, never, <laughs> and never could be. Number two, not particularly a John Carlos Stanton fan, but in that day, and this must have been about, it feels like it must have been about 10 years ago. I know it's probably more recent than that. He beat the shift four times. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy to see that. You know, I remember the shift going back to as late as the late 1960s. Gil Hodges with the 69 Mets used to do what they call the McCovey shift for outfielders. And it worked for them. I just think that the shift has become overdone and i guess i guess in that way i'm very happy to see it over with um i think it's hurt hitters i think they've had to alter their swings and uh look i know baseball is a game of adjustments you're always making adjustments but when you're making adjustments that totally screw up your game I think that's a bad problem. Mm -hmm. I think it it will make the games a bit more competitive. Yes, it's a tool that managers will no longer be able to to use. Sorry, uh, I'll be happy to see how it works. And, you know, if if it winds up staying no shift or if they wind up altering the rules again down the line in the next few years to say, okay, you can use a shift X amount of times per game. Mm, Okay, yeah, you know, because, you know, I certainly hate the shift. I do kind of feel like it isn't really fair to tell a manager he can't, you know, if you want to put, you know, seven guys on the outfield, you know, go for it. Right. Yeah. And then bunt, <laughs> yes. bunt get a triple out of it. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, cause, cause I, I look, cause I always look back at, you know, like Rod Carew and George Brett and Tony Gwynn, they would have laughed at the shift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They would have, and so would have a whole lot of other players. I mean, Willie McCovey, who I mentioned earlier, he would have given the shift the middle finger, and he often did. <laughs> yeah, no, no question. So that is uh, one of the changes in in that in that respect. So the pitch clock. So I know there's been some experiments with that, and uh, I know in the minor leagues they say that has helped this, the pace of play, which is a big deal uh, for people who want to uh, maximize their time, I guess. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I saw I saw a number of minor league games last year with a pitch clock. I liked it. Uh, 
I'm glad that finally MLB is going to go with it. And I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, first of all, 30 seconds max between batters. I think that makes sense, unless, of course, you have a mound visit. 15 seconds on the pitch clock with the bases empty, 20 seconds with base runners on. I think that's reasonable. I mean, remember Mike Hargrove, the human rain delay at the plate? <laughs> Yes. We've had enough human rain delays on the mound over the years. It's time to do this. Mm-hmm. I can remember when baseball games lasted a couple of hours. And uh, now for a lot of fans, you know, anything over three hours is interminable. I don't have a problem with game length. The game is the game. Mm-hmm. And I hate fooling with the game. But I think this is adjustment an adjustment that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, as far as that goes, you know, I know they had talked about, you know, making sure batters stay in the box, and they never really enforced it. Um, I think that no, might I mean, be another, like the, just, yeah. That's like trying to enforce coaches staying in the coaching box by <laughs> third base, yeah. you know, and I still see them halfway down the line. But here's the thing. I talked with a number of minor league pitchers who have worked with the pitch clock over the past couple of years, and they all told me, hey, it's not a big deal, mm. not a big deal. Yeah, I think it's probably the the older veterans in the major leagues that are going to probably be the ones who squawk about it the most, I would imagine. I think you may be right, and it's going to be interesting to see what their reaction is. But uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing the pitch, pitch clock in action. Yeah, no question. And then they're going to have bigger bases. So this will be an interesting concept because, you know, it might lead to more steals potentially, you got a little less distance between first and second base um, and maybe a safety precaution for plays at the plays at the base. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I understand the safety precaution. Remember uh, uh, the play between the Phillies and the Mets a few years ago where the Mets had a second baseman. Uh, I want to say it was uh Tejada, who had his uh, leg broken uh, when Chase Utley slid hard. I don't know if this is going to make a difference in uh, player safety. I also don't know that it's going to make a difference in increasing the running game because, I mean, you know, somehow I hear Maury Wills and, and Lou Brock and Vince Coleman and Ricky Henderson saying, we didn't need those stinking bigger bases. <laughs> they all stole well over 100 bases in a season. Uh, I'd love to see more of a running game. That's something that's totally disappeared. And that would be, that, that will be exciting to see if that indeed materializes. The one thing I would like to see them do is the old softball thing where they have the uh, the base in on the other side of the foul line for the runner to hit. I think because I, I, it seems to me there are more and more close calls of runners and the first baseman coming to come into collision. Yeah, I don't know if I like that. And when you started to mention softball rules, I thought you were going to be talking about the mercy rule or something like that. <laughs> no, no mercy rules. <laughs> let's, let's see 20 runs. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Um, of course, you are a big Mets fan, uh, probably the biggest Mets fan I know. And I, I work with a couple of my day job. My Mr. buddy is here with me. Mr. Mets. <laughs> yep, and I- and here in here in the big chair office, we have a number of uh, pieces of Met memorabilia. So yes, and 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 let me just uh, say that I am drinking out of my official World Series 2000 Subway Series 
uh, Cup. I went to game four. Okay, so, nice. And brought this all the way back to Florida from New York. <laughs> what kind of idiot brings a plastic cup <laughs> back from New York? A diehard. That's <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and it holds water as well as any camel. Yeah, there you go. So you've met all the important criteria there. There um, you go. So the Mets were, one. what, I, what uh, Carlos Correa signed with virtually every Major League team in the offseason, it seems like. He signed with the uh, Marlins last week, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so so he he eventually ends up back in Minnesota, but he was in the equation with the New York Mets. And uh, and was it buyer's remorse? Uh, you know, the you know, a couple of teams uh, blocked at his quote-unquote medical exam. Um, well, first, first of all, I've got to say that it was kind of fun to watch Scott Boris, the super agent, go from uh, $350 million to $200 million. <laughs> one of the first and one of the few times we've actually seen him uh, take a loss with any player contract, but $200 million is nothing to sneeze at. Um, buyer's remorse. We still haven't seen the exact medicals, and I don't think we ever will see the exact medicals on his right ankle. And there is so much conflicting information out there uh, between the what the Giants found, what the Mets found. And I believe they used the same orthopedist in uh, in going over the medicals there. My feeling was and is and always will be, if in doubt, get the hell out. It's what the Giants did, and it's what uh, what uh, Steve Cohen did with the Mets. The interesting thing with the Giants is that, that they hesitated the day before they were having the press conference to introduce Korea as a San Francisco Giant. Yeah, The Mets, this went on for like four weeks, four freaking weeks, which was unbelievable. <laughs> and by the second week, I can tell you that a number of Mets fans I know – we're, we're pretty much over it. And they said, you know what, let's just walk away from it. And and I was one of those people who felt that way. If in doubt, get the hell out. And I think it was a smart move by then. Now, here's the thing. Korea winds up back with the Twins. He had uh, a good year with them, but not a career year with them and opted to try and go for the big money. But he seemed very at home there and they seemed very happy to have him there. And I think, you know, the deal he's got there, I think this is going to be a good deal for them. I think it's going to be a good deal for him. And he doesn't totally lose out. Uh, he signed as uh, a six-year deal for $200 million guaranteed, but it can max out at 10 years and $270 million. It's not quite as much, but, you know, what the hell is $80 million among friends? <laughs> I think, I think you know, he'll do just fine, and I, I, I don't think he'll be eating, uh, you know, his dog's food for dinner uh, anytime soon. And I hope he does well there. I think he's a terrific player. Would I have liked to see, have seen the Mets get him? Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. But they did all right as it was. And, you know, again, I hope he does well with the Twins. I'm glad he's not playing the National League and not in the National League East. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so give me your, uh, your, your scouting report, your rundown on New York Mets baseball 2023. What do you, what do you, what do you expect this season? Holy crap. <laughs> I mean, can I can I tell you something? It's like a QVC shopaholic <laughs> sitting in front of the 
sitting in front of the TV all day with a credit card. And I'm looking at the list, and and I had to double check the numbers. Um, the Mets payroll is now in the neighborhood of three hundred fifty five million dollars, and they're going to start calling this the Steve Cohn tax uh, <laughs> for for the Mets owners. But wow, wow, Verlander, Nimmo, Kodai Senga, pitcher from Japan, Ottavino, Tommy Pham. Omar Omar Narvaez. Did I did I mention Nimmo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. They extended Jeff McNeil. Uh they avoided arbitration with Pete Alonso, and he's going to make fourteen and a half million. And who knows? Maybe he'll wind up with an extension. They made some amazing additions over the winter, and it's going to be one hell of a lineup. If if you know where this is going. Mm-hmm. You want to say it with me? If Health. they stay healthy, yes, yeah, that's always a that's always the the big thing. You can have depth, but uh, when you have a, a that many stars, you know, with any of those guys miss time, you have bigger pieces to replace. Well, and they've got they've got five great starters here in Scherzer, in Verlander, and Senga. Those those will be your top three. Jose Quintana. And 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 uh, Cookie Carrasco, those are five great frontline starters. It's like holy cow! They got a bullpen with Diaz, who was lights out last year, and Ottavino and David Robertson and uh, Drew Smith is in there, and they've got other candidates who could fit in there as well. And the starting lineup, I mean. Catcher is up in the air because you got three guys who can compete. Narvaez, who just signed as a free agent, and I'm trying to figure that one out. He played with Milwaukee and had a good year, um, I think, in 2019. Showed a fair amount of power, but he hasn't matched that. And yet they signed him to two years and $15 million. So they know something I don't. (laughs) They got Pete Alonzo and Darren Ruff at first. Ruff... uh, had a rough time of it last year, but you know, he's going to be an understudy and probably an occasional DH and whatever. If, if he makes it out of spring training, McNeil, the squirrel at second base, third base is a really good question. Cause you got Escobar who had a really great September and did in September, what they hoped that he would do all season long. He delivered with power. He, he got on base a lot, but you also got Brett Beatty, the uh, rookie, came up uh, for a little bit at the end of the season. And Mark Vientos, who uh, has shown nicely at AAA. Uh, shortstop, Lindor, left field, Mark Kana, Nimmo in center, Marte in right, Vogelbach is your DH. Um, I'm not saying these guys are the 27 Yankees. They're not. But it's a great lineup. And if they stay healthy and, you know, if they play up to their potential – uh, it's going to be great. I mean, the one wild card in all of this besides injuries is you still have a team that won 100 games and washed out in the playoffs, and that's going to happen. And that happened with, I think, what what was it, three 100-win teams this past year? My Braves being one of them, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's like a holy crap moment. How does that happen? And, you know, it goes back to, in, in a short series, Anything can happen. And so, 
you know, we're hoping that they get past that first round. <laughs> so are you disappointed or happy that DeGrom has moved on? Who? <laughs> there you go. That no. Answers my question. <laughs> no, you know what? I Look, um, it seemed evident for a long time that, that, you know, he was, he was going elsewhere. I'm grateful as a fan for what he did with the Mets. Uh, but you know, I, it's his prerogative as a free agent to do what he did. I hope he does well. I hope he stays healthy. I think it was a good move for the Mets not to re-sign him because he's had so many so many health issues over the years when he is on there's nothing quite like him but when but but when he's on the shelf he's not doing you any good by the way i was at the exhibition uh the pre exhibition game last year where he and scherzer pitched Ooh. <laughs> and, and down in port st lucie and that was an amazing experience and i've seen Degrom pitch uh he is when he's healthy superhuman and look i hope he has a great rest of his career i'm grateful for what he did as a met fan i hope he does well at texas um and you know he obviously did what was a great fit for him and for his family he he, he's going to pitch for a great manager down there in in bruce bochi who i still can't believe decided to come back and get back into the fray again but you know good for him yeah good for him and if anybody can Florida do anything with guy, the Rangers, he would be the guy. <laughs> yeah, and Florida guy, you know, he's from Melbourne. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, I, I I wish him luck. The Texas fans, uh, they're good baseball fans down there, and I think they'll have have fun with DeGrom. Yeah, that should be good stuff for sure. Um, and, then of course, you know, the National League East will be another, you know, last man standing to win the division. Uh, of course, they got three into the playoffs last year at what – was considered maybe a couple of years ago the worst division. It is now the very best in the National League. Well, you know, you and I are old enough to remember a couple of cycles where they used to call it the National League least. Yes. <laughs> so, you know what? It, it, it's a fun division to be rooting for a team in. And, uh, you know, I I met uh, Brian Snitker years ago in spring training, and as much as I have detested the Braves most of my life, <laughs> and I hate that frickin' tomahawk chop, I have a tough time rooting against him because he's a really good guy and a great baseball man, and God love him, he's been with the Braves organization all of his career, almost 50 years, and his players swear by him, so... You know, I hope they do well, just not at the Mets' expense. Yeah. I th- Phillies, I've had a problem with uh, for a while, too. But, you know, they they got they got everything they deserved. They deserved everything they got last year. Mm-hmm. And I have no quarrel with <laughs> I have no quarrel with it whatsoever. And uh, it's going to be a fun division to watch. Yeah. And, you know, great point about Snicker. I mean, that's one of those things when you uh, – when you see the word baseball guy in the dictionary, that's his picture, right? <laughs> yeah. And we have to remember these 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 guys are all human beings. And when you meet the enemy up close and personal and you find out that he's a really good guy, well, you really want him to be a jerk and he's not. Yeah. Like, you can't root against a guy like that. He's one of the nicest guys in baseball and he's a great manager. So there you go. Yeah, no question about that. So, uh, of course, uh, 
we talk about your your uh, your work, CBS News Radio, and uh, in fact, I am actually speaking to you because I know on social media you tell us when you're going to be in the big chair anchoring the uh, the hourly and bottom of the hour newscasts, and uh, you are actually in the big chair for this. I am. I am in the big chair, and uh, you know, the big chair is just kind of uh, theater of the mind. It's a it's a standard office chair like anybody else has, but you know, it feels a little bit bigger when you hear the tone go off at the top of the hour and the sounder that you played at the top of our podcast here, and it's like. All right, baby. Well, you know what? For the next five minutes, uh, we got to make it happen. We got to make it as perfect as we can. Yeah, it transforms into like the con on the the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it almost feels like warp drive because you're putting in a lot of stories at uh, in, in a short amount of time and just trying to give people a taste for what's going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, so we're, yeah. We're so tell me, you headline surface. Yeah. So but, you'll you know, yeah yeah exactly. So you'll anchor you know for a few hours. So tell me how your day starts and how you kind of get into that uh, into that flow. Sure. Well, uh, on a typical anchor day, and and we should mention that I'm uh, I, I am now working happily freelance part time after 25 years as a full time correspondent, and that was uh, an extremely important personal decision I made uh, at this stage of my career because there's other stuff I want to do, but this lets me anchor two, three days a week sometimes, and much more, say, during the holidays when they really need bodies. And you know from your radio experience that part-timers are at a premium during the holidays. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so we, we do. The, the, the way it works is that um, if I'm anchoring, say, on a Friday, my first newscast is a 1.31 p.m. update. It's a 60-second news brief, actually. But I'm in the big chair at 11.45 a.m. Um, part of my job is to put together a 60 second sports brief that goes out to uh, our affiliates in the middle of the afternoon and then start writing newscasts and putting them together one by one. And every hour is, you know, every, every hour is a jigsaw puzzle. We have a finite amount of time in those top of the hour newscasts because we have to take breaks that are timed to work with say, automation systems from our uh, our affiliates who, you know, take their local breaks and so on and so forth. So the timing's got to be perfect, split second. And uh, it's basically a different jigsaw every every half hour. You know, five-minute newscast at the top of the hour, one-minute news brief at the bottom of the hour. And uh, when there's breaking news, uh, that makes it even uh, even more interesting. Uh, as you and I are talking, uh, it's been a few days since uh, the Air Force shot down that Chinese balloon. And that was our big breaking story on uh, Saturday when I was on the air Saturday evening and Saturday night. So, you know, you always love having breaking news because that means people are paying attention. And, uh, you know, your job as a radio news anchor or reporter becomes that much more important. Mm. For sure. And of course, you were, you know, one of the preeminent journalists who has covered the space program over the years. And uh, thank you for saying that. That's 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 very kind of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you, you certainly have earned your stripes uh, on, on that side of the ledger for sure. And, you know, recently we've had anniversaries of the two biggest tragedies that, that we had. And these are events that you always know where you were you know, when those things happen. Like, for example, uh, <clears throat> the Challenger, uh, January 28th, 1986. So I was working at uh, WKIS at the time, very early in my radio career. 
And I was driving to the office, pull up in the parking lot. A few people are outside watching the launch. So I, I watch. And, of course, we everybody kind of says, you know, that uh, exhaust smoke looks a little weird. And yeah. so I go upstairs, and as soon as I hit, as soon as I hit upstairs, the newsroom is in full gung ho mode at that point uh, to to cover the the events of that day. Uh, you know, it certainly was a you know probably what the biggest tragedy since uh, since the '60s. It had been a very long time, and shuttle launches had become pretty routine, pretty regular. Um, what is your recollection of that time? I was in Syracuse, New York at the time, and I was, uh, it was before my journalism career. I was a uh, midday disc jockey on what we called a full service AM radio station back then, which meant we did uh, adult contemporary music, but we had news at the top of the hour and, uh, and a big news department and so on and so forth. I had been giving blood when it happened, and I came out in the car, turned on the station. Paul Harvey is on talking about the challenger explosion and that's how i found out and i remember meeting a friend for lunch after that happened and we were standing there looking at all the tv store tv sets in a radio shack store next to where we were having lunch and couldn't believe it um i remember on the way home that afternoon listening to jay barbary on nbc radio uh, because we weren't carrying wall-to-wall coverage, uh, but our competitor was, and just listening in disbelief. Now, keep in mind that this was 19 years after the Apollo 1 fire, and um, the the anniversary of that fire had been uh, the day before January 27th. So, you know, that was top of mind for me, me being a space geek. And I remember getting home and sitting in front of the TV and watching the coverage and uh, never imagining at that point in my life that, you know, the space shuttle was going to be an important part of my life down the road. So I remember that day very, very well. Yeah. And, and, uh, and of course, I know, you know, since you've been covering the space program, of course, you also you have become a great historian uh, in that regard, as far as uh, the things that have happened in the space program throughout the years. So then, you know, Columbia happens on February 1st, 2023. So this is just a few days ago of the, uh, marking that. Uh, yeah, actually, two, 2003. We yeah, marked 2003. It. Yes, partner, yeah. yes. Uh, so 20 years. And of course, you know, I remember <laughs> my wife and I are walking the dogs uh, down uh, around the West Orange Trail in Apopka. And a guy on a bicycle, I guess, was listening to radio and headphones. Said, "Hey, did you hear about Columbia?" And said, uh, "No." And he said, "Yeah, it, it blew up coming in." And so, yeah. you know, we finished walking the dogs. I get in the car, and then, you know, I'm flipping on. There's Peter King covering uh, uh, the the events of the, of that moment. And uh, so, yeah, your 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 time in covering the space program. You know, that has to be one of those, obviously, it's a it's a key moment in your career, but it's also one of those that just has to, you know, break your heart at the same time. Oh, you know, you, you just nailed it. Um, I remember that morning very, very clearly because I had, when I put the headphones on to do a 9 o'clock live shot for our new 9 o'clock newscast, everything was fine, and I said so on the air. 
I pull the headphones off and I'm listening to the air to ground traffic and I'm hearing um, Capcom Mission Control calling up to Columbia and getting no answer. And I'm listening for two or three minutes of this. I walk into the TV studio next door to, to my radio studio where my colleague Bill Harwood is sitting and he had been exchanging messages with a couple of people, uh, unbeknownst to me, but he knew, you know, had an idea what was going on. He looked at me and he said, dude, I don't think they're coming back. I'll never forget that as long as I live. We took air just a few minutes later. We were the first network radio uh, operation to uh, report that, uh, you know, something had happened. I mean, uh, landing time came. There was no... There was no landing. There were no sonic booms. There was no nothing. And we're basically flying without a net, uh, depending on NASA to tell us what's going on. And when you're in that kind of situation, yes, the pitfall fell out of the bottom of my stomach um, because seven people were lost in, in those moments. And then you have to kind of shift into the mode of, okay, we got to keep it together and we've got to tell the story as best as we can, not speculate about what happened, ask the right questions, wait for the information to tell the story. And, you know, wild speculation does not work. And a lot of people like to throw stuff up against the wall to see what sticks. And, uh, I can remember one of the questions I asked. We got we got an expert on the air with us who is a, who is a good friend uh, to this very day. <laughs> he was putting his pants on and had one pants pant leg on when he called, and he stayed on the air with us with half the oh. half his pants <laughs> on the floor because he's trying to listen and watch with us. And I remember asking, you know, is it possible that you know some kind of uh, terrorist act could have brought this down for example cruise missile or something like that and you know he answered right away well unlikely because they were so high but i mean remember this was a year and a half or so after 9 11 had happened mm-hmm. so those are some of the things that are going through your head crazily enough yeah uh it was an unbelievable time and i've said this often and um it was a horrific story to cover because people died. It was an incredibly great story for me to cover because I got to cover it from start to finish. The flight from launch to Columbia's demise at the end and the entire investigation that followed. And keep in mind, the Iraq war is getting ready to start up a few weeks from the time this happens. Mm -hmm. And even with a six-week break to help with Iraq war coverage, I got to cover most of the investigation and the hearings and, and this and that all the way until they came up with a final report that August in Washington. And it was one of the most incredible journalistic experiences of my life. And then beyond that, the process of returning to flight, you know, all the things that they had to fix, all the things they had to change, all the things they had to learn how to redo that they had kind of forgotten to do, like listen to their people and that kind of thing. So it was, uh, 
it was definitely a defining moment for for me career wise and in my life and i'll never forget it yeah you know it's interesting too because uh when you speak to how things like this affect you personally so like with with challenger so my dad was an engineer with uh, martin marietta back in the day he worked on the first external tank for the space wow. shuttle yeah. And of course, you know, I, I called him uh, during the time of the Challenger accident and, and, you know, they had heard internally there about the problem with the O-rings before it was even <clears throat> released or, or broken on the air. Yeah. And in, in, you know, in, and when I was talking to him that day, I always remember how sullen he was because, you know, everybody with the space program you know, it touches many, many people far and wide, and he was just devastated by by well, what and happened. People, and people who live here in Central Florida, you know, this is very, very personal to us because this is all happening in our backyard. These, uh, you know, the space workers, the astronauts, uh, the whole nine yards. I mean, um, it's it, it's it's here in front of us. It's not it's not just a TV show. Yeah. Of course, you know, a few years ago, you did a, uh, a great program, one hour special on uh, the Apollo anniversary. Uh, so one giant leap revisited. And uh, tell me, you know, because this is another pride, you know, pride thing for, for Central Florida, a pride thing, you know, this is a great thing you got to be involved with, you know, kind of recap for me what that special meant for you. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? I was 12 years old when uh, Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon. I was a certified space geek by then, very much so. And to be able to honor Apollo 11 on its 50th anniversary was an incredible, incredible thing. I mean, once in a lifetime for me, because we don't do a lot of documentaries and stuff like that. You know, it's mostly spot news and newscasts and reporting and stuff, but I got the okay to go ahead and do it. So I had a couple of archive interviews that were wonderful, and I did a whole bunch of new interviews that were fantastic. And, uh, you know, p- people we talked to uh, who were involved in the program, who later were still involved with the shuttle program, we talked to three kids, three of the Apollo 11 kids. and. That was pretty cool. You know, Rick Armstrong, who was Neil's son, Andy Aldrin, who lives in uh, here in Central Florida, was Buzz's son, and uh, Michael Collins' daughter. And we did a segment in there. What, what was it like to be an Apollo 11 kid? And can I get up just for a second? Because yes, I want please. to go grab something. Sure. Okay. Hang on a second because it's right over here. We will do some theater of the mind here. (laughs) I spent a Saturday morning in my garage looking for something desperately that I thought would be fun to use. Now, this is a cassette tape. Ah. It is from 1969. And what it is, is on the night of the moonwalk... We were getting ready as a family to fly away on a vacation from Kennedy Airport in New York. 
CBS had set up a big screen in in the International Arrivals Terminal. And I stood there for four hours to watch. And I had my brand new cassette recorder. So as a 12-year-old, I was playing reporter and describing what went on. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I had the play-by-play of when Armstrong stepped on the moon with this little high voice that says, Armstrong is on the moon. We've beaten the Russians. <laughs> And I was able to use a snippet from that in, in in the program. And that was, you know, I felt like it was a major victory when I found this. Uh, but, you know, putting the whole, t- whole thing together, trying to tell the story in ways that maybe it hadn't been told before. And we didn't focus a lot on Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. We focused on a lot of the other people who were, who were part of it. Uh, I had an interview with Jack King, who was the launch commentator, who talked about what it was like, you know, driving up to uh, the launch control center that day. I talked with uh, Terry Rowan, who was a one-time reporter, who was selling Girl Scout, with her Girl Scout troops, selling donuts across the way in Titusville. Uh, I talked with uh, my college roommate, who described what it was like watching the launch from summer camp down in Sebring. Uh, thing, things like that. Bob Seek, who was later a shuttle launch director, who told us uh, he actually had the day off from NASA because he was working on Apollo 12. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We went to Houston and uh, saw the remodeled mission control room, uh, which is now as it was during Apollo 11. And Bill Harwood and I sat for a half hour with Gene Kranz, the legendary flight director, who happened to be the flight director excuse me, the flight director during the landing and and got some wonderful, wonderful comments from him. Um, we did a number of segments uh, uh, that were, uh, you know, sidebars, uh, uh, unsung heroes who you might not have thought of. Uh, and that was a lot of fun too. And this is still out there. Yeah. Uh, if you Google the uh, the title, as you so aptly mentioned a little while ago, One Giant Leap Revisited in CBS News. You'll find it out there, and hopefully uh, you'll find it worthwhile. It was, a, it, it was the hardest thing I've ever put together, and it was so rewarding to have put it together. Yeah, based on what you've just told me about all the things you did, how to fit all that into an hour. <laughs> it was hard, and, 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 and that's a really, you know, Remember what I said before about putting the newscast together is like putting together a jigsaw? Well, they gave me, they said, okay, section A has to be X amount of minutes and seconds. Section B, same thing. We wound up doing five sections, and they all had to be timed out perfectly. Mm, that's some, uh, that's guess some- what? We hit the mark. <laughs> that's tough work. That's tough work. It's really tough work, but it was so worthwhile. And I just remember uncorking a bottle of champagne when it was all over because uh, and put to bed and in the system. It was like, wow. I, I I don't know if I ever want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> With that champagne, did you celebrate like it was a world championship? <laughs> no, we actually drank, drank it. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, space coverage, uh, you know, things are coming up in this calendar year. Oh, yeah. Um, kind of give me some uh, thoughts on, on what we can expect to see uh, from over on the well, coast. 
let me tell you, we've got what looks like, uh, if everything goes according to plan, five human space flights. Four of them would be SpaceX. One of them would be Boeing. So here's what we got. I'm going to put my reading glasses on here. The When does this podcast go up, actually? Okay, so I'm recording on a Tuesday evening, and we'll uh, probably put it out on Wednesday evening. So it'll be oh, that's the good. Because we've got one going on later this month, which would be no earlier than Sunday morning, February 26th, which will be the Crew-6 rotation flight that takes the next crew members up to the International Space Station. We have a couple of private space missions that SpaceX will fly. One possibly as early as March called Polaris Dawn. And you may remember Jared Isaacman uh, from a couple of years ago, the Axiom 1 mission that he paid a lot of money to fly. And it was the first all-civilian uh, all civilian space flight uh, and private space flight. Well, he's funding this one as well. And this would happen in March sometime, uh, no earlier than. In May, Axiom 2 which will be, you know what? I, I I had that wrong. It wasn't Axiom 1. It was Inspiration 4 is, was his flight. Forgive me. Axiom 2, which is another private space flight, uh, could fly in May. And that's actually going to be commanded by former space station commander Peggy Whitson. So that could happen in May. And then the seventh crew rotation mission would fly sometime this fall. Now, in the middle of all of that comes April, Boeing Starliner, uh, which is their crew capsule that was supposed to fly two years ago. But because they had a software problem and mistakes and had to rejigger everything, they're way behind schedule. But they are hoping to fly their Starliner in April with astronauts uh, Butch Wilmore and Sonny Williams aboard, two space shuttle and space station veterans. And on top of that, you know, NASA is working on Artemis, which is what they call their moon program. A few uh, months ago, uh, or just a couple of months ago, we had the launch of that mammoth moon rocket. They're preparing for Artemis II, which would be a crew mission. and would carry four astronauts around the moon sometime late next year if things go as planned. And we're expecting sometime in the next few weeks, we're expecting to find out exactly who will fly that mission. They mm-hmm. haven't made the crew yet publicly, so that is supposed to happen. Now, on on top of that, there are going to be a whole lot of other launches that are uncrewed launches. SpaceX is looking to launch in the neighborhood of 100 rockets this year between here and Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base out in California. They launched, I believe it was 57 in 2022. So they're really stepping it up and they're proving that their their business model really, really does work. Yeah, that's... Uh... Quite a story, uh, indeed. And you just look at the fact that, you know, it's been great to see all this renewed interest uh, in, in, in space exploration and, and whatnot. Well, it's it's an exciting time to be in the space business. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people forget that there's a space station up there and that it's been up there, you know, for um, some 23 years and change. 
but the problem is space station doesn't go anywhere. It goes around the earth, round, round, and round, and round. I think when we start talking about sending people out there to the moon again, you know, that might generate even a little bit more excitement. Uh, the private space industry, there is so much going on. And I can remember back when they were retiring the shuttle and so many hardliners who, you know, thought NASA way was the only way to do it. And they were waiting for SpaceX to fail and SpaceX has not failed. Um, Elon Musk has really designed a good business model in terms of reusability and um, reusability and speed. And so far, no corners cut and his vehicles have flown very, very safely. Yeah. It really is what you, you, you define a game changer, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you could put you could put SpaceX right next to that phrase in the dictionary. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Boeing, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how well Boeing keeps up in terms of, uh, you know, how many flights they make every year. You know, SpaceX has this down, forgive the pun, uh, to a science. <laughs> Boeing, in many ways, has been used to doing things the way that uh, they've been doing them for decades and decades and decades. It's a much bigger corporation with much more red tape to cut through. And and they've had other problems as well, which have, uh, you know, compounded everything. So, you know, you hope that they can get on track because, quite frankly, the more players you have here, the better it is. The other thing we ought to mention involves the Russians because uh, there was a leak aboard the Soyuz spacecraft that is there now as a lifeboat, and they're going to launch an uncrewed Soyuz that was originally planned to bring space station astronauts, cosmonauts up uh, in the next few months. Instead, they're going to send that up to replace the damaged spacecraft. So that's happening, too. Wow, it's a busy, busy calendar. That's that's for sure. If you it really is, and you can't tell the players without the scorecard. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, make sure make sure to write it down and uh, keep your programs handy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I thank you for letting me tap into uh, the the great space knowledge that you that you were able to uh, partake with us there. That was awesome, and uh, and, you, and you know, I would I would say good luck to the Mets. I really can't. <laughs> we will we will we will have to be frenemies on that part of the of the, of the world but uh mr met and i do not hold that against you <laughs> yes <laughs> so yes so thank you and mr met and uh, and your and your 20 year old plastic cup for uh for being part of the program it's uh Indeed. it's always a pleasure to talk to you peter i appreciate it Jeff, it's never often enough, and it's always fun. Thank you for having me on and now let's close out things with a TV theme. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.
I figured with the space angle, we had to go Star Trek to go where no man has gone before. You know, this is what all this stuff in the space program we're hoping to attain someday. Traveling across the vast galaxy and discovering neat and wonderful things. So, uh, Star Trek, our theme for this week, and I kind of want to part with this thought. You know, the really the only two surviving main cast members, William Shatner, Captain James T. Kirk, and George Takai, played Sulu. Guys, please stop feuding. Be friends in your golden years, my friends. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, we thank you, and with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net. Central Florida, it's Pebo Bryson. Double Grammy and double Oscar Award winner, Evo Bryson, performing live at the third annual Apopka International Jazz Festival, Saturday, March 25th, at the beautiful Apopka Amphitheater, hosted by world-renowned saxophonist Kim Waters, along with urban keyboardist Kayla Waters, and jazz violinist, the king of string, Ken Ford. It's an evening under the stars, where you'll enjoy incredible music, delicious food and drinks, along with music lovers such as yourself. It's Evo Bryson Live. Me and the girls will be right there. Saturday, March 25th at the 3rd Annual Apopka International Jazz Festival. Gates open at 4 p.m. For complete details and tickets, visit ApopkaInternationalJazzFest.com. Sponsored in part by United Arts of Central Florida, Orlando Health, Florida Blue, and Tito's Handcrafted Vodka. Get your tickets now!